Well, good morning, everybody, and good to see you. Uh, if there's anybody that you've not yet waved to, this is your opportunity. Turn around to somebody that you haven't waved to, give them a nice wave, that's good. And you can actually wave at us as well if you're watching this uh, online. My name's Roger, I'm one of the leaders of the church here. I'm a bit concerned that nobody uh, seems to want to give Doug, uh, not Doug, uh, Dave, either a hug or a, uh, or a kiss. Um, so maybe, Gloria, your best place to actually sort of respond to that. Oh, that's good. That's good. Wonderful. Thankfully, that's not online for everybody to see uh, at all. I want to give you a little bit of a recap as to where we've been going. We've been thinking about dealing with changing times as a church. These are indeed changing times, aren't they? That's right. Yeah, that's right. The answer is yes. So we've been thinking about the different changing times that can come our way going through the life of Joseph. So here's a little bit of a recap for you. Joseph was the youngest of 12 brothers. All but Benjamin were his half brothers. Joseph was a pain as a teenager. Daddy's favorite, despised by all his brothers to their point of wanting him dead. The brothers relented from murder, but only just. They threw him in a pit to starve and then instead sold him in to slavery to some uh, Egyptians so that at least they would get some money. They then lied to their father. They carried their guilt around for 22 years. Joseph, meanwhile, did not die. Despite even more suffering and being treated so unfairly, we've looked at all of that as we've journeyed through the book of Joseph, uh, the book of uh, Genesis. Joseph suddenly gets jolted to this uh, position of the equivalent of prime minister, if you like. He, was, he wasn't recognized by his brothers when they came to Egypt for food during a famine. Joseph had power to have them executed on the spot, but he creates opportunity for them to acknowledge their wrong, come clean and show some integrity. But he knows it's going to take a little bit of time and a fair degree of soul searching. So he gives them opportunity for both, just like God gives you and me that time for soul searching in terms of where we're at. Last week, we then explored the whole issue of guilt. And it's been interesting that from time to time, we've been saying in in, uh, in our letters to, to members, if anybody's got some form of testimony to share, then feel free to do that. And people during that, that series have, have been doing that every now and then, which has been great. Nobody offered anything when it came to guilt, which I thought was quite uh, interesting. We explored, though, not just the guilt that the brothers felt, um, but we also thought about our own guilt, didn't we? What we do with it and why we so often go back to that place of feeling guilty, even though, according to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is no condemnation for anyone in Christ Jesus. And it's off the back of that verse that Robin mentioned to me a particular picture that they've got. And he's going to briefly come and mention that to you now. And I hope you get the visual aid of what's behind this verse. Thanks, Robin. I guess we forgot his mask this morning. <laughs> Dear. Okay, so here is the picture in um, a past life, I was leading um, with my uh, then wife a study group, and we were talking about sins, and we were talking about the idea of leaving the sins at the foot of the cross, and also the way in which we have this horrible habit of snatching them back before we leave the foot of the cross. And a friend of ours who's an artist 
painted this picture. As you can see, the amazing light from the cross, and at the foot of the cross there is a dustbin for our sins. And the blood of Christ from the cross is washing those sins away and washing them clean. Thank you, Robin. I thought that was so powerful. May that visual aid stick with you. The story ended last week with the brothers returning to their father, Jacob, but without Simeon, and then telling him that they can't go back to get any more grain or have Simeon released until the youngest brother, Benjamin, then goes back with them to Egypt. Jacob, the dad, isn't too happy, lashes out at his sons and is initially defiant that Benjamin is going nowhere. Were we to have a theme this Father's Day of how to be a rubbish dad, the picture of Jacob we have in these surrounding uh, chapters would be the perfect uh, platform. But we're not going to go there. Benjamin was Joseph's other brother, but only they had the same mother, Rachel, who was Jacob's favourite. Hence the added tension here. The seriousness of the famine eventually wears Jacob down and he relents, allowing Benjamin to accompany his brothers to Egypt. But what reception would they get this time from Joseph? Remember, they'd also found silver in their sacks and were now worried that they would be accused of being thieves. That would mean certain execution. Jacob thinks about how they can butter up this prime minister. And it's into that context that now Pat aged a lot younger than she's going to be on Saturday, is going to read from Genesis chapter 43, if you've got a Bible with you, beginning from verse 11. Thank you, Pat. Genesis chapter 43, verses 11 to 43. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm and a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, so that he will let your brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver, and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare dinner. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought, We were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance to the house. Please, sir, they said, we came down here the first time to buy food. But at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight, 
in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us. We have also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put the silver in our sacks. It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, and provided fodder for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon, because they had heard that they were to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were, and then he said, "'How is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living?' They replied, "'Your servant, our father, is still alive and well,' and they bowed low to pay him honour. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, "'Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about?' And he said, "'God be gracious to you, my son.' Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out and, controlling himself, said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. So I've got three quick stories for you as we get back to that passage that Sarah was referring to and that Pat read to us. In 2006, a man named Leroy purchased a painting for $3 at a local Goodwill store. It turned out to be a Flemish work of art that dated to around 1650 and he sold it for $190,000. Randy Giaro was walking through another thrift shop when he discovered three tintypes inside one of the boxes. A tintype is an old picture printed on thin metal sheets. He paid $3 for all three photos and headed home. Upon closer examination, he was shocked when he realised the famous outlaw, Billy the Kid, a bit like the masked Robin Rowles that we saw earlier coming up here this morning, and his friends and family. That photo was then resold for $5 million. And finally, in the year 2000, painter Randy Norsegian purchased a set of glass plates that had printed images of Yosemite or Josemite, I'm not sure what the pronunciation is, National Park, which he bought for $45. After investigation, he found out that they were the work of a famous photographer, Ansel Adams, and worth a mind-boggling $200 million. Dorchester's charity shops are going to be invaded on Monday morning, are they not? I wonder how you feel when you receive something that you don't feel that you 
deserve. Maybe you've had a win on the lottery. I'm not expecting anybody to volunteer that in a church just in case somebody else next to you is... But it may well be that somebody has expressed their gratitude to you in a particular way when you weren't really aware that you'd done anything special and you were quite overwhelmed uh, by that. Maybe you got picked for a sports team or you got promoted at work and you saw that there were others in and around you that you thought really warranted that more than you did. Maybe it was when you caught a glimpse of your first child. And you were a bit overwhelmed with, wow, I don't deserve this. The story of Joseph is not about a multicoloured coat or even Jason Donovan back in the day singing that any dream will do. And I did think about getting you to do the backing vocals, but maybe thought better of it. It reaches its climax in the demonstration of forgiveness. Showered upon his brothers, even though... They did not deserve it. And that's what we're thinking about today. Dealing with undeserved favour. Because as we see this picture of, uh, of, of the story of Joseph, we can look forward to the picture of what God's heart is for you and for me. And often when we see things through story, it's a lot easier uh, for us to understand. So they sold their brother into slavery and unbeknown to them, their brother is now prime minister of Egypt and they ended up feasting on his food. They totally do not deserve this. And they're amazed in the overwhelming and undeserving goodness that's then poured upon them. A picture of the gospel. God's overwhelming and undeserving goodness for the likes of you and me. But what else can we discover? When we come to God's word, yes, we've had the narrative of a real event that occurred in history. And you can check out history books to check that out for yourselves. But when we come to God's word, we see not just uh, the events that occurred way back then, but we need to come to God's word recognizing that this is how God speaks today. He speaks in a variety of ways, but particularly through his word, which is relevant for all people, for every season, of every background, for all time. So our job is to think, that's a great story, wow, for what the brothers were able to experience. But God, what is it that you want to say to me, to us, through this narrative? So we're going to think briefly about that today. First thing that struck me is this, in terms of what else can we discover. Seek to resolve things at all costs, especially relationships. I wonder how we react to those people who have hurt us. It may well be if it's a small thing, you can deal with that quite quickly. It may well be it's a bigger thing and a deeper thing, and sometimes that can take years for us to properly deal with it, can't it? I wonder how you would have reacted if you had been Joseph on the receiving end of all the stuff that he was on the receiving end of. Here are the guys who caused Joseph to lose his family, friends, possessions and status. Someone once said to err is human, but to forgive is divine. Often we can be somewhat resentful, can't we? maybe holding on to our bitterness, maybe lashing out whenever possible, or at the very least, uh, um, drain everything with negativity or a critical spirit. Even worse is when we maybe come across people who don't even realise that's how they are, 
or what they're doing. And you may well know people like that. The goal for Joseph was reconciliation. That was what he had in mind. A path that would only ever be possible if there was forgiveness offered. And we don't know how he got that, but he most definitely got it. The work of God inevitably in his life. Sheila Cassidy, who was imprisoned by Pinochet, said these words. However much we have been wronged, however justified our hatred, if we cherish it, it will poison us. Hatred is a devil to be cast out, and we must pray for the power to forgive, for it is in forgiving our enemies that we are healed. The narrative, as I mentioned, is a picture of the gospel, what Christianity is all about. It's why Joseph is often referred to as being a type of Christ. God wants us, who have created barrier after barrier after barrier, due to our own selfishness, to be reconciled to him. You will no doubt know the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. God's heart is to grant forgiveness, but that can only occur when we realise that we are responsible for what we have done wrong. So we need to respond by repenting, turning around and start living in a God direction. That ping, that light bulb moment had occurred initially for the brothers back in Genesis chapter 42. We looked at verse 21 and verse 28 when they were recognizing this, this guilt, this probing, this conviction that they were feeling in their lives as a result of what they had done to their brother. Guilt can prevent us from seeing the hand of God, certainly initially. So what's our response when we find ourselves in that place? Is it just resenting? Is it seeking revenge? Or do we seek to reconcile? That's one of the first things we need to think about, isn't it? Seeking to resolve things at all costs. Secondly, things don't always work out as bad as we might think. Although if you watched England play football the other night, things turned out a lot worse than uh, us as England fans uh, maybe would think. I know Ali uh, is celebrating here on the front row. It's interesting, isn't it? The result, in, in case you're not into football, was nil-nil. Scotland move up to one point and are celebrating as if they've won the whole competition. England are already on four points and we're thinking this is desperately, desperately depressing different perspectives but the, sh- the story back to our story then shifts from the brothers on to joseph who was then waiting for their brother's return he too must have been wondering a few things himself will his brothers return will they leave simeon to his fate is benjamin even alive what about his dad or did they do something to benjamin in the same way as they did to him years ago and then finally that waiting is over how his heart must have been pounding as he saw that younger brother of his he probably had only been uh, maybe a toddler when joseph was forcibly uh, dragged away from his family Next, they are directed, his brothers are directed to Joseph's own house. 
Now we might think, oh, that's a nice thing to do. Uh-uh, not for them. They would have been scared witless. Why? Because prisons were often located within the homes of well-to-do political figures. And Joseph's not even there initially to greet them. And they are sent off to his house. The story continues and we get to verses 18 uh, to 22. I want to just read uh, some of those they, uh, those verses. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to the house. They thought, well, we were brought here because of the silver that was put back in our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance and they tried to then put things right verbally. At this point, as you can tell, Joseph's brothers are really freaking out. They wondered what in the world was going on. It seems that their guilt is magnifying their anxiety, if you like. And we can probably connect with that, can't we? Immediately, they focused about the money. It must be about the money. must be about the money, they thought to themselves. So they're going over and over, stumbling over themselves to then explain things to the steward. But notice from those verses what I read, what they are seemingly afraid of. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves. Their own guilt was being squeezed out of them because this is exactly what they did. They had seized their own brother, hadn't they? They had overpowered him. They had sold him into slavery. And now this is what they feared would happen to them. Talk about a guilty conscience and a twist of irony. Maybe they didn't even realise what they were saying. But we see things in reverse, don't we? The brothers are terrified. They're expecting the worst. So imagine their surprise then, when despite their fear, they meet Joseph's steward and his first words are in essence, peace be with you. They hear that that money was put in their sacks by God. Wow. Then Simeon is brought out to them and he's okay. And then they've got water to wash their feet. That was a a welcome, the way you would welcome uh, guests. And then they were given food for their donkeys. Things were certainly not as bad as they thought they were going to pan out. But here's an important question. Why did Joseph's brothers never once think or relate any or all of this to the amazing abundant grace of God. For ourselves looking back, it seems blatantly obvious. But when we're in that place at the time, it's not always that easy to see. We only see what we're going to see. And if what needs to be dealt with and hasn't yet is our guilt, and that's probably all we're going to see first off. Because their fear and their guilt kept them from seeing God's hand of grace in their lives. Nevertheless, the unmerited favour of God had come in abundance to them in the form of grain and money, the returning of Simeon. God was so, so good to them. Yet they'd only had the capacity to think or to fear the worst. Do you know people like that? No matter how much the sun is shining, they will find something to focus on which is negative. That's all they are able to see. And sometimes we're in a particularly dark place ourselves where we're so overwhelmed by that cloud of whatever it is that that's all we're able to see, despite maybe the nuggets of gold that may be all around us. 
This story reflects of God being a good, good father. It's Father's Day today, and we'll be thinking a little bit about that later as we pray, because this day can bring all sorts of emotions to the fore. But through this passage, we see the father heart of God being nothing but positive for the likes of you and me, no matter what we've done and no matter who we are. We're going to reflect on that in worship before we think about what our expectation might be could be and maybe should be in the context of this passage let's pause to worship him before we pick up the story again thanks Sally thanks guys it's great sometimes to pause to let those words of worship songs just penetrate our hearts isn't it this goodness of God who is there for each and every one of us today I wonder what our response is particularly when I ask that question What are you expecting from God if this is a good good father, who he is? What happened next? Well, they had come bearing money, gifts, hoping to buy the goodwill of the Egyptian uh, prime minister. More importantly, they had brought Benjamin, as the man had requested. But instead of being asked about any of this, however, they'd been taken to the prime minister's house for a feast and we read in verse 26 when joseph came home they presented him the gifts that they had brought into the house they bowed down to him uh, before him to the ground just like joseph one of joseph's dreams you may well remember years before he asked them how they were and then he said and how is your aged father you told me about is he still living joseph wasn't really interested in their gifts at all They'd be really quite sacrificial with all their pistachio nuts and all the rest of their malarkey that they brought. Bear in mind, it was a famine. Joseph wasn't really interested. He was more interested in them as people. He was more interested in their father and particularly in Benjamin. These brothers must have wondered what on earth was going on. Think about those efforts religiously that we seek to appease our God with. That's okay. But bottom line is what our Father God is more interested in is our relationship with him. Not the bits that we're going to strive hard to give him so that this makes me look a little bit better than that person or whatever. He's wanting relationship with you, with me. The attention then turns to Benjamin and choking back uh, the tears. Joseph asks a question that he knew the answer to. Uh, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? His brothers probably nodded yes. And Joseph then blessed him. Joseph was 16 years older than Benjamin, his only full brother. So Benjamin must have only been around about a year old the last time that Joseph had seen him. And as he gazed upon Benjamin, this kind of now young man, maybe thoughts of his family, maybe of his mum who died giving birth to this young child flooded over him. He managed to say, may God be gracious to you, my son, before he was overcome with emotion and left the room to weep. The Bible says in verse 30, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. And as Joseph bolts out the door, 
the rest of the brothers must have looked at each other again and said, did we say something wrong? What is going on? Once again, they were left in great confusion and anxiety about what this powerful Joseph had left the room for. None of them seemed to be surprised at the spiritual blessing that had been bestowed upon Benjamin. I mean, wouldn't have that been weird for an Egyptian to have done that from a completely alien culture? To have used similar wordiology that they would have been accustomed to as Hebrews. Joseph then composes himself and comes back into the room. Serve the food. I want you to picture that uh, scene because it, it's going to be slightly different to how we may well uh, have a, a buffet Picture that scene. Verse 32 says they served him, that's Joseph, by himself. The brothers by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. So Joseph is there longing maybe to be in and around his brothers, but he's at that top table on his own. The brothers are on their own table, but receiving VIP treatment and no idea how they've managed to land that whatsoever. And then there's the Egyptians on their table practicing pre-COVID social distancing, if ever there was occasion to. I nicked that, I know, guys, from yesterday. It came up at Cafe Church and I thought I need to pass that on today. It did strike me as being amusing. All those cultural taboos. Joseph, though, could only observe and maybe seek to try to work out what the lips were saying amongst the conversation between the brothers. But the scene gets even more bizarre. We read in verse 33, The men have been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest. And they looked at each other in astonishment, maybe as they saw their cute little name tags or whatever they had as they sat down thinking this is just bizarre and then when portions we read in verse 34 were served to them from joseph's table benjamin's the youngest his portion was five times as much as anyone else's so they feasted and drank freely with him do you know how many different combinations there are for the seating order of those brothers I mean, we, we've just read it there in one verse that they were seated in age order. Now, I'm not a mathematician. I've got a failed maths A-level twice to prove it. The bottom grade, grade F, where back in the day means you got even worse than when you took your GCSE. Ta-da! But apparently, I read that there are around about 40 million different combinations It just so happened, coincidence not, that these brothers were in order of their ages. What must have been going on in their heads? Either somebody knows more about us than we're aware of, or there is something incredibly supernatural going on. And they would have been pretty freaked out by either possibility. And we would be, wouldn't we? If somebody knows something more about us, or we think there's no way that anybody could have known that, we don't like that. In the age of Big Brother watching us, we're a bit paranoid about that. And then if it's something of the supernatural ilk, maybe you've had somebody pray for you, 
and you've not even disclosed what the issue is in your life and somebody has prayed over you such a prayer to the point whereby it may well be that the person praying doesn't know what your issue is but they are speaking right into your life and you're thinking god is on my case and that was the case here obviously with the brothers but they didn't seem to talk about that there's no record of that instead maybe like any bunch of guys are thinking food boom let's get stuck in they didn't even quibble with the fact that benjamin was getting five times more than them and i touched on this last week i couldn't help thinking again going through this chapter whether or not this again was just god keeping the veil across their eyes preventing them from seeing because it still wasn't yet time we've got another few chapters to go and we're going to do a big roundup next week by way of conclusion it still wasn't time for that climactic moment so in one sense the bubble would have been burst if brother number five would have thought ah it's joseph ah got it oh can't now have the rest of the chapters in genesis none of them none of them had a clue at all So I'm just wondering whether or not they had any idea at all. At this point, Joseph's brothers, as I say, still didn't realise who he was. They're enjoying such kindness. Maybe their fear is subsiding, uh, but they would still have been struggling with why they were getting such special treatment. From Jacob's and then the brothers' fears to Joseph's tears. Tears for fears. It's a good name for a band, isn't it? Those of you around in and around the 80s will remember that. And it's here that we see something else that happens, which is quite incredible. How Joseph's act of grace freed everybody up at the tables is quite apparent. In the beginning, there were feelings of anxiety and dread as the, the guilt was kind of uh, holding those bro- brothers in its clutches. Their fear knew no bounds as they returned to Egypt wondering what they would then face that by the grace of God things did not turn out as they expected I wonder if you're thinking the worst maybe it's a health issue maybe it's not an issue that's in the now but you're thinking the worst in terms of what is ahead I mentioned last week having a conversation with my mum about the way ahead for my dad who's had Alzheimer's for about 10 years you can work out the way the script would have gone. We face real issues, don't we? God is with us and wanting to journey with us through what we're facing in the present or in terms of what's ahead. Moreover, remember it's a famine and here they are eating, but eating with royalty. The whole thing is just bizarre, isn't it? Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And the brothers are thinking... We did not expect this. We do not deserve this. Love covers a multitude of sins, the New Testament tells us, doesn't it? They were being recipients of favour that they hadn't earned and kindness that they didn't deserve. We might use a, a couple of words that we call unconditional love. And there is the platform for us to point people to the one who died on the cross. Remember that cross that Robin came and showed us earlier, the cross that, uh, that in that picture that Robin portrayed was empty because this Jesus that we worship may well have died there, but he's no longer there now because he's so great that he actually conquered death itself. 
I'm sure those brothers slept a lot better that night, don't you? Than they would have done in the day's build up to that. Next day, they headed out to Canaan, no doubt all smiles and giving each other high fives. Simeon was freed. Benjamin wasn't taken hostage. They'd enjoyed a good feed. They then had their sacks stuffed with grain again. They could hardly wait to get home to tell their father the good news. But, dun, dun, dun. And this is where if we had the East Enders theme, do, 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 do. This would be the cue because it's not the end of the story. So we need to tune in next week or turn up next week to see how things conclude. Not just by way of the story, but what this means ultimately for the likes of you and me. Because that's always what God's word is about, as I mentioned before. It's not just about the story. It's our story with his story because god loves to loves to give us what we don't deserve maybe as you are watching sarah on the screen do that pretty flower and you're thinking about what might go inside that flower with grace written around the outside of things that you can be thankful for and you've got touched afresh of the overwhelming grace of god to you as you can think about what you would write within that he loves to give us what we don't deserve. He loves us and he longs to forgive us. So come clean with him. If there's something that's acting as a little bit of a niggle or a fear or an anxiety of what might be ahead, you might as well bring it to him because he knows what it is already. He's not going to be surprised and he's never shocked like the brothers were. Experience his forgiveness a fresh touch from him maybe today and of course it's up to us what we then do with that we can say well thanks for that no or count me in in which case let's just stay where we are as we think about the embodiment of unconditional love and sing a song that's specifically about this jesus and as we do so let's do so in thinking about our own prayerful response to him jesus 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 holy and anointed one he wants to be a part of your life if you're watching this online and you want to find out how that can happen do get in touch through the home page of our, our website we would love to have a conversation with you god bless you